You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Other than obstructive sleep apnea, what disorders can be discovered by ordering a sleep study? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Doug Hudson. Dr. Hudson is board certified by the American Board of Neurology, the American Board of Sleep Medicine, and the American Society of Neurorehabilitation. Welcome. Thank you, Leslie. Dr. Hudson, other than sleep apnea, what are some of the common sleep disorders that can be diagnosed or, I guess, confirmed by a sleep study? Well, there are actually several, and we have 80-some-odd known sleep disorders, but most of them don't require a sleep study, which we can discuss momentarily. But, uh, oh, many things such as uh, periodic limb movement syndrome, which is the nighttime version of restless legs, and those are associated with arousals of the brain, which then create daytime fatigue and sleepiness. Condition of narcolepsy is also supported by the sleep architecture, often seen to be very fragmented in the narcoleptic patient, and the multiple sleep latency test, which is a daytime sleep study where the patient goes in at two-hour intervals or stays in the lab and at two-hour intervals are asked to take a nap, and, uh, and they often will go into dream sleep or rapid eye movement sleep within the first 20 minutes, and narcoleptic patients are considered to sometimes do that three or four times uh, out of four naps. Uh, you need two, generally, to make the diagnosis. We see people with what we call REM behavior disorder, which is now a very popular disorder because it's been associated with the condition of Parkinson's disease, which will develop in a large number of people later in life. In that disorder, we see a lot of limb movements during REM sleep, and that's not normal because you're supposed to be paralyzed during REM sleep. You don't make the diagnosis, but it supports the diagnosis. And seizures are common at night in stage two sleep where the sleep spindles are very rhythmical and will trigger seizures. So we sometimes order uh, studies for patients that have seizures. There's more than just obstructive apnea. We have central sleep apnea, which is caused by a failure of the respiratory center, either because of cardiac reasons or uh, sometimes brain reasons from strokes and things like that, and uh, congestive heart failure. And then a condition called complex sleep apnea, which has recently been defined as the inability to rid the patient of their central events with CPAP titration. And there's new equipment out to treat that with, by the way. We can differentiate the types of apnea in certain stages of sleep, like in REM sleep, it's more common because the muscles are weaker. We look at the sleep position. It's often more common in the supine state because being on your back, there's gravity involved. We look for what we call hypoventilation syndromes, and that's when somebody has low oxygen levels that we can't correct with CPAP, so we start looking for CO2 retention and pulmonary disorders. We look at the cardiac state. People have cardiac arrhythmias, especially during certain stages of REM sleep. Uh, anyway, those are just a few of the things that we look for other than sleep apnea. You mentioned not all sleep disorders require a sleep study. Uh, what would those include? Well, the ones that do not require a sleep study would generally be like restless leg syndrome by itself. If someone comes and complains of the symptoms of restless legs, which is, as you know, is the urge to move your legs in the evening when the sun goes down. It's related to the, our normal dopamine levels that fall when the sun goes down and there's a certain area of the brain that's very sensitive to this fall in certain people. 
and uh, they get relief by moving their legs around. And we treat them often with dopaminergic agonist drugs. And if they get well, and in other words, they feel great, then we don't usually order sleep studies on those patients. If, however, they are sleepy the next day, then we assume they possibly have the nighttime version of restless legs, which is called periodic limb movement syndrome. These movements have to come out within 40-second intervals, and they create arousals of the brain, which disrupt your sleep architecture and make you sleepy. So we do that because it gives us the time to use medication, like dinner time and then again before bed and so forth. And most of the insomnia patients we don't order sleep studies on if, unless they're sleepy the next day. The chronic insomniac cannot take a nap. They're, they're not sleepy. They have a hyperarousal state, and running a sleep study on them is generally of not much value unless they have daytime sleepiness. Okay. So, so that would be one of the only reasons to get a sleep study on an insomnia patient would be if you suspected that? Something has to not be right during the time they sleep. Now, if someone says they sleep for two hours and feel great for 22 hours, they, of course they wouldn't be in the office. But if someone sleeps 10 hours or so and they still are, are tired and, and the next day and sleepy, then something's wrong with their sleep architecture. And uh, unfortunately, and I'm not, we all do this, that a lot of doctors give all sorts of medicines for people to sleep with other than sleeping aids. And all of our new sleeping aids, such as Ambien and Lunesta and Sonata and Rosarium, they're designed to be specific for sleep and not for other things. They're not designed for anxiety and they're not designed for depression and things like that. They're designed just for sleep. But we give over-the-counter things, Tylenol PM, we give Trazodone, we give Remeron, and I do all this too after we try the regular stuff, but a lot of times people come in and they've taken all these other meds. So sometimes if you're looking for medication effect in an insomniac, you might want a sleep study, but just general run-of-the-mill insomnia, we will often delay that until they have daytime symptoms that suggest that something's not right. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is sleep medicine expert Dr. Doug Hudson. We're discussing sleep. Dr. Hudson, can you run us through the stages of sleep and what the significance is of each stage, please? Yes, well, of course, you start off awake, uh, and then you go to what we call stage one. And stage one is when your brain waves start to slow down just a tad, but you're awake, and that would be a stage where if someone called your name, you would answer them. You know, you've done this in classrooms and places like that where you didn't quite fall asleep, and it's stage one sleep. The brain waves are beginning to slow down a little bit. But those that stage lasts for only just a few moments. Sometimes it lasts for three or four minutes throughout the night. Occasionally, however, some people that last for a long time, and that's not good either to have that much stage one sleep because it's not restorative sleep. And then you usually drift into what we call stage two sleep, and that's where you see what we call sleep spindles. And if you order an electroencephalogram on someone, that's what they look for to decide, decide if someone's asleep, and that usually comes on within a, you know, 15 minutes or so after someone falls asleep. And these are very rhythmical spindles that arise from the thalamus of the brain. And, and the brain waves are, are slower. The, you see some eye, rolling eye movements that we see. The, brain, the electromyogram is still intact, and you can see muscle activity. The heart rhythms are fairly normal at that stage. And we go in and out of stage two throughout the night. You spend about half of your night as normal sleep study in stage two. 
And then after stage two, somewhere about an hour or so after you've gone to sleep, you start drifting into the deeper stages of sleep. We, they've been labeled as stage three and four based on how much brainwave slow wave activity is present, but some new guidelines which will be put in place this year by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine is doing away with stage four. So we'll just have stage three, one, two, and three, which is simpler. We always have to say three, four. But that's the restorative stage of sleep, and uh, we can talk in a moment about what happens during these stages as far as endocrine function goes and all. And, and then about an hour and a half, uh, it is your normal time, so an hour and a half after you've fallen asleep, you go into dream sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. You do that for a few minutes, and that is a time where the muscle activity is depleted or down low, and your body's paralyzed. You're not supposed to be able to move. Obviously, your muscles of respiration are intact, but your eye movements are moving back and forth and up and down very rapidly, and that's where it gets its name, rapid eye movement sleep. And then you go through the cycle again uh, a few times throughout the night, and that's uh, those are the stages of sleep. That sounds like everybody dreams at least a few times a night. You know, they really do. And I'm just amazed that when we look at the percentages of sleep time that the people spend in various stages, and this was all done by the MDs and PhDs long, long ago, and it still stands true how much time we spend about half of our night in stage two, 25% in REM sleep, 25% in stage three, four sleep, plus or minus a few, depending on medications, depending on the lab setting and so forth, but uh, it's amazing how, how true that stands. But why don't people remember them? Well, you don't remember dreams so much because you don't awaken right after the dream. Dream sleep is different, too. We have what we call tonic realm and phasic realm, and phasic realm is when things are, there are many more eye movements and little muscle twitches but not that, that come out, and these are driven by certain parts of the brain. Dreams are usually more exotic or exciting during phasic realm. We often wake up in realm sleep that's early in the morning, and that's when you remember your dreams. And, of course, some people wake up in the middle of the night with a frightening dream, and it's, uh, it's very disconcerting. But usually you just go right in and out of these stages throughout the night. I do know that REM sleep is an extremely exciting period of time. The autonomic nervous system is elevated. The sympathetic uh, activity is increased because sleep itself is generally a parasympathetic phenomenon that goes on all night. It's a time for rest. It's a time for blood pressure to drop and uh, heart race to slow down and everything, but REM sleep is a very exciting time. All sorts of things happen during REM sleep, and you do dream out of REM sleep, but uh, I think the more colorful, exotic dreams have been proven to come out of, of REM sleep. I was amazed the first time I saw a sleep study of just how active our brain is during REM sleep. Very, very active. You're right. Blood flow, everything is all excited. Someone said that if you had to be awake during room sleep, you could barely tolerate the autonomic storm that's going on during that time. Is it normal to awaken during the night? Fairly normal. I think most of us, you get a little older, of course, you start uh, having a little joint pain or something, but it's very common to arouse in the middle of the night to be awake for a few moments and turn over. Some people are have more of a hyperarousal state and look at the clock and things like that. The tired people, though, the ones that are really tired, are those people that stay in stage two and REM sleep, which are the lightest stages of sleep. And uh, those are the ones that can hear the ice machine making ice and hear the water coming on in the yard and so forth. And, and they're no, they don't get the restorative three, four sleep. 
but arousals are very common, which are a little different. Arousals are different than awakenings. Awakenings is more of an awareness of it, that you're aware of it, as opposed to just a brain arousal. So can lack of sleep cause serious problems? Well, it's well known that loss of sleep, either through insomnia or sleep deprivation, which really aren't the same. I mean, to be sleep deprived would mean if you had a job or some concerns or worries or anxiety or something and you were sleep deprived uh, as a, or stayed up all night studying or something as opposed to just being unable to sleep. But both of those types of insomnia and sleep deprivation are well known to be risk factors for depression. And of course, the other way around too, many, not most depressed patients have sleep disturbances and it's important to tie the two together. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Doug Hudson. We've been discussing sleep. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.